Welcome to episode two of the That's All Right podcast. I'm your host, Dr. TJ Stewart. On this episode, I had a dynamic conversation with Dr. Oyan Poon and Dr. Charles H.F. Davis III, where we talked about writing for the public and public scholarship. Throughout the episode, they shared insightful reflections on what public scholarship is, who gets to be a public intellectual, how to approach writing in these ways, and the critical need for answerability as perhaps a prerequisite to that work. In a moment, I will read their bios and we'll dive into the episode, but I wanted to offer a few notes before doing so. As a reminder, I am developing and producing this series as a service in kind to ACPA's Virtual Writers Retreat. Um, any questions, concerns, or comments about the episodes can be sent to me at terraj at gmail.com. That's T-E-R-A-H-J-A-Y at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from listeners. As always, the views expressed by individuals are always their own, and we welcome critical, radical, and justice-based perspectives in this work. Finally, while I do my best in the distant and virtual format of podcast recording and production, occasionally, technology and connectivity issues can give me grief, like it gives all of us. Where possible, I try my best to address these in post-production, but your grace is more than appreciated. With that, let's jump into these bios. My first guest is Dr. Oyan Poon, she, hers, and Dr. Poon is an associate professor affiliate at Colorado State University and a program officer at the Spencer Foundation. Her research interests include Asian Americans in education, affirmative action, organizational change, and the racial politics of college access and admissions policies. As a public scholar, Dr. Poon is a co-lead author on the amicus brief submitted on behalf of 678 social scientists to defend race-conscious admissions in the SFFA v. Harvard case. Her work has been featured in NPR's Code Switch, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition, The Atlantic, Slate, Vox, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, Color Lines, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. She has also presented at a TEDx talk and written numerous public essays and published in outlets such as Diverse Issues in Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, The South China Morning Post, and The Conversation. Dr. Charles H.F. Davis III is a third-generation educator committed to the lives, love, and liberation of everyday Black people. As an assistant professor in the Center of the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education at the University of Michigan, Dr. Davis's research and teaching broadly examine issues of race, racism, and organized resistance in college and its social context. In addition to publishing in academic journals, he has published scholarly essays and provided expert commentary in the Los Angeles Times, Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, and Diverse Issues in Higher Education. He is the founder and director of the Scholars for Black Lives Collective and considers Black Lives Matters Los Angeles his primary political home. I'm so excited for you to listen in on this conversation that Dr. Poon and Dr. Davis and I had. And with that, let's get to it. We are recording. Well, I'm excited about the conversation today. Episode two of That's All Right podcast, where we'll be talking about writing for the public, blogging, op-eds, press releases, and creative slash multimodal writing. A lot to get through in about 40 minutes, but we will do our best. And I am joined by two dope scholars, dope writers, people I admire greatly. 
Dr. Oyan Poon and Dr. Charles H.F. Davis III. And so before we jump into our questions, I will have you all just briefly introduce yourself. Uh, so where you uh, are and what you do, uh, and then we will jump right in from there. So whoever would like to go first, May. Um, greetings, everyone. Um, Oyan Poon, she, her, hers. And I am Zooming in from Chicago. I'm an associate professor affiliate at Colorado State University and a program officer at the Spencer. Uh, great. Good evening, afternoon, morning, depending on when you're listening to this episode. My name is Charles Davis. I'm an assistant professor at the Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much again for being here. And we're going to jump right into our first question, which I kind of want to make an assumption and to get your perspective on the merits of that assumption. And so I think that writing for the public means that we are in essence situating ourselves as public scholars, public intellectuals. And on that point, I want to read a brief statement from Untold, which is a writing consultant firm who writes, uh, on the question, who is a public intellectual? It does the public far less good to define a public intellectual based on their prestige, audience size, media attention, social influence, or even genuine regard for the unencumbered pursuit of knowledge? Uh, there's truly no action unimpacted or uninfluenced by power structures. After all, even if some pursuits of thought leadership are more transparent and authentic than others, um, instead, we define public intellectuals as individuals in pursuit of knowledge, knowledge making, excuse me, and knowledge sharing, those with an irrepressible belief in the importance of fact finding, researching, sharing insights, and hearing diverse perspectives of both decision makers and those impacted by them. So love to get your reactions to this definition, but also what is your own around uh, what is public scholarship? Uh, and, and who are, what is a public intellectual? You know, as scholars, we know that definitions are always relative, right, with regard to context, audience, like so many different factors. Um, and so I'd have to imagine as a writing consulting firm, right, language is intentional with regard to how they're using this definition based on who their clientele may be. Um, and so I think the definition within its context is, you know, perfectly fine. Um, I don't think that it applies to the way that I would interpret or understand what it means to be a public intellectual, which has been like a developmental thing for me, right? I think coming into graduate school um, as a young Black scholar, you know, I was motivated by what I saw sort of as the public intellectuals for Black folks. And so I remember being an undergrad watching um, State of the Black Union, which was hosted by Tavis Smiley. It had like Trisha Rose and Cornell West and MHP and like all these, you know, powerhouse scholars. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, that shit is dope. I want to do that, whatever that is. Um, but I didn't really understand what that was, right? I was like, I wanted to be called Doc at the barbershop and like be considered a you know very smart black person, you know, <laughs> at best. Um, and what I came to sort of understand and learn is how much labor and work goes into even being on the stage of that magnitude um, with regard to our own bona fides around our particular areas, but also this expectation as minoritized scholars to know a lot more from a breadth standpoint than necessarily depth. And I think we can all sort of recognize the extent to which like ascending into the academy, earning the PhD um, for our communities represents something very different than what's interpreted as what we do here. And so, you know, it's sort of building on that for me um, was really wrestling with this notion of what it meant to be um, answerable 
to a public beyond our colleagues, beyond these institutions, and what that actually meant with regard to the type of work that I would do, but also the types of problems that would be at the center. And so I draw a lot on the work of Charles Hale and Joy James and Edmund Gordon and others who have wrote for this uh, compendium entitled Engaging Contradictions. And one of the things that they share is that public intellectualism or public scholarship really is only as good as it addresses the intractable and pressing problems of the public itself, right? So it's not about notoriety or recognition um, in that we have sort of household names as a result of what we do in the public sphere, but that we are really dedicating our skill sets, our resources to answering these really important social and political problems of our day. And so for me, when I think about you know, public scholarship, it's really a matter of like, what does my work do to improve the material conditions of everyday black people, right? And if I can't answer that, um, in a way that is substantive and meaningful, then I don't think I'm actually doing the work that I suggest that I'm doing and the things that I write and talk about. And to me, that discontinuity is where we see a lot of separation between those that maybe espouse this notion of themselves as a public intellectual, despite having no public to whom they actually are answerable. Yeah, that's really insightful, particularly, you know, the piece on answerability. We were just talking with some colleagues around how Le Patel talks about that in uh, decolonizing research methodologies, but this idea that you know, oftentimes there seems to be this assumption that like you get the degree or the credential, you do um, sort of the performativity of public intellectualism and scholarship, and then one becomes a public intellectual, but like the public itself sort of be damned. And so I really like um, Tressy McMillan Cottom is one of my favorite examples is that uh, sort of the material impact of the scholarship, right? And sort of the way, the molecule shifting ways it's addressed uh, in higher ed, at least, um, sort of how we view sort of the work that we do in trying to shift that, really kind of making the difference. What about you, uh, Oyan? How are you thinking about what is public scholarship? Who is a public intellectual? Yeah, I, I love um, that point about accountability and accountability to communities and peoples. Um, I would add to that, the one thing that's missing for me in this definition is learning. Right. I think that uh, public intellectualism has I mean, learning is so central to that. Right. Like I feel like um, to, to Charles's point about the degree and the paper, um, you know, I, I feel like I learned so much from a lot of folks that don't have the terminal degree. Right? And for me, there's so many. Yes, there's so many folks like this is probably the only thing that keeps me on social media, like Twitter and Instagram is the memes and like the, <laughs> the engagement, right? Like the public citizenship engagement, right? Mm -hmm. um, where people are asking questions and it's challenging me to think about like, how do I think about these questions, right? I've learned so much from um, folks, uh, especially in the last couple of years around abolition, right? Mm -hmm. And especially with the Atlanta shooting, I learned about an organization called the Red Canary Song, yes. um, right? Uh, uh, about, about um, you know, sex workers, yes. and, right? And, and so it's really challenged me to think about what are my understandings, right? And so shout out to these community organizations and Absolutely. young people, especially who are engaging in social media in ways that my Gen X self is yeah. not really naturally engaging yeah. in these ways, but I'm receiving these things to think about how I'm learning and what I'm learning and to challenge things that I've learned in my past and how I learned it. Yeah. And so I think public intellectualism is pretty much anyone who's willing to 
put out ideas, but also question ideas. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to get to this idea that who gets to be one. Cause I think this, this sort of this perception that if you don't have a certain level of, of name recognition, and I would even go far as to say, even for folks who feel like they have a credential, there may be, um, we think about even some of our own publications in higher ed, if you don't have the right credential or from the right place, then you're not seen as then a worthy uh, a scholar, a voice, uh, a resistor to whatever the current discourse is, right? So we, we've seen that in one publication where we go to sort of the Ivies when we want to question about higher education and sort of ignore all of the folks who do higher education sort of scholarship and work. And so, you know, what also was coming up for me, which you named, Oyan, and, and sort of also sort of connecting what Charles said is that in my own sort of profile, like a lot of the public intellectuals are people that most folks don't know. So the folks on the work, when I'm thinking about erotic laborers, are not folks that have these massive followings, but in that work, particularly if you're going to be in that community, to your point, sort of the adage is nothing about us without us. And so if I'm going to be someone that's, you know, again, answerability, uh, and, and I'm sort of pushing in my work that there's a difference between community engaged scholarship and work and community accountable scholarship and work. And what does that mean? Like, yeah, I was engaged with the community, but I'm not accountable to them once it's over <laughs> or whatever I do with it next. So uh, all of that, I, I, uh, as they say, I'm, I smell what you're stepping in. So, you know, I want to kind of move to this next question in that you both have written in some pretty visible uh, what I would sort of consider high profile spaces. And not only that, I mean, as an aside for the listeners who don't know, uh, have been quoted in a lot more places. You've been interviewed and I have, you know, was doing my due diligence and doing some of the, the research, but I'm thinking about specifically for writing. Can you talk about how writing for those outlets might differ than writing in other places and spaces? And so for people who may not know, who've never done it, you might work with an editor uh, but I know even in, in the uh, bit of writing I've done in those outlets, it's different than writing wording with an editorial board. And so just wondering, what are your approaches and what are your goals for the writing? Do they differ and, 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 and why might that matter? I'll go first this time. <laughs> um, you know, and I, I have to acknowledge that one of my favorite public writers is on this conversation, Charles Davis. Mine too. Uh, <laughs> I, I speak into the space, recognizing that. Um, I think it comes down to, well, you know, you ask about the difference, right, um, in academic writing and public writing. And to be really honest, I um, I struggle with the difference mm. <laughs> um, sometimes because, um, you know, Eve Ewing recently, uh, I heard her talk recently, and she said something about how, you know, she wrote ghosts in the schoolyard uh, with her, um, her her seventh grade students in mind. I believe it was seventh grade. Um, but, right, the students that she used to teach in public schools in mind, like, will they get it? Will, will the teachers um, that she uh, wanted this book to be in the hands of, um, will they take it in? Will they take something away from it? And really, I think it was her grandmother she also named. Um, so I think about that, right? Like I often ask my partner who is not an academic, like read this, this makes sense. And sometimes he will tell me straight out, like, no, this, this, what the heck is this? Like, what are you trying to say? Speak right. in people terms, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it, there's that, like, I, I think about who I want to impact with my writing, who yeah. I'm 
I imagine oftentimes, um, even with my academic writing, um, I think about who I really want to read it, right? So I'm, I'm looking right. up this, I have this note in my bullet journal about who I'm writing my, mm. my book for that I've been toiling over. And I wrote, uh, I'm writing my book for Asian American young adults who may be trying to figure out their relationship to the world and social responsibilities. Mm. For those thinking about how they can contribute toward new visions and world making for a more just society. Um, Right. So I have people in mind that I'm writing for, but it's an academic book. I'm, I've submitted it to an academic press. Now with op-eds and everything, obviously not everyone's going to be buying my book or in the right. book, right? right. And right. so then how do I translate pieces of a bigger work for um, shorter, short time, five minute reads, right? right. And right. there I'm thinking, I'm also thinking about and envisioning people on the other end. Um, yeah, so I'm still thinking about the people. And, and so I don't know, I struggle with empirical academic work, even as a reader, when it's like yeah. super dense and I'm like, what am I trying to take away from this? What does the author want me to take away from this? Right, so it sounds like that for you, sort of who does it need to be made legible to? Uh, and sort of this broader question of um, sort of the audience. I think in some of my action research, how I've talked about that, because as we know, sometimes our the communities we work with may not be interested in, in writing with us or writing at all. But I say, who do you want to hear your stories? Who do you want to be impacted by them and how? And um, informing then sort of in a, the approach to, well, here's how I might, you know, get the biggest bang uh, in our for our efforts, and so what about you, Charles? How how do you think about the two? Are they different? What differences are they? How do you prepare um, in non sort of journal outlets in terms of writing for public? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so much of writing for me is like very technical and formulaic, but not laborious in that way in the sense that like you kind of just draw on these different things that you know because you're trained in a particular way and I have to say you know sort of transparently as someone who was like a writing major in undergrad my mother was an English teacher for 25 years so we were hooked on phonics every summer regardless of <laughs> sort of need right, <laughs> right um, my right. grandmother's a librarian and so like words and language and stories have always been a part um, for me but what academia did was almost separate me from that tradition in a certain way that I remember very distinctly coming home from um, uh, the winter break from one of my master's programs and having a conversation at the dinner table and both my parents were like, boy, what are you talking about? And these are like, you know, folks both who have uh, undergraduate degrees and master's degrees and, and again, are like in this space as either an educator or leaders. And so when it was lost on them, the things I was trying to articulate, I realized that I had sort of become as, as uh, Cornel West often says, deodorized and manicured in my discourse, right? And I forgot about the funk in a way that related the language that I was trying to use and ways of talking to, you know, really like family and, my, and everyday people. And I think part of the, the tea that I'll spill in this episode is like my editor for the longest period of time has always been my mother. And so she is like a, and she comes from like the grammarian, like old school, like syntax, like verb, right. subject agreement, like all of these things. Right. So she gets me together on a regular basis, but it's always a sense of, you know, are you being clear? Right? What are you trying to say here? Um, and so I'm always thinking about that in mind. But then on the other hand, right, I know that for certain stuff like academically, 
that she can edit for those types of things, but would not necessarily give me stuff on content. And so I have to have like a suite of folks, right, that we engage in this conversation um, with. And as I think about this in the public for like, you know, op-eds, one of the things that I've, I've learned over time is that although it's called like an opinion essay, we don't sort of have the ability to simply assert opinion in space, right? As like terminal right. degree holders, as faculty and so forth, right? Our level of um, rigor, if you will, right? Or the extent to which we have to be wholly factual and what it is that we put forward, I think is a bit different than some of our colleagues and even like white professors to be completely honest. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's always determining not what my opinion of a situation is, but what is my actual analysis? Right. right. And when I can ground on what the analytical point I'm trying to make or multiple points, it's a lot easier, I think, to see the landscape of what can and should be done within this 750 word space. Yep. Um, yep. And I think that's a challenge for many of us because, you know, you go through, you know, the academic writing exercise with these long papers and, you know, culminating with the dissertation or even when you're writing articles where you have 40 some pages to explain yourself. Right. In right. foreground, you don't get the liberty to do that in this space. So it's sort of what is the analytical point and whether that can be really clear. And I think a point that I made on Twitter the other day. Um, you know, I think you referenced to the extent that, you know, we're, we're uh, engaged by reporters who want to have our take. You know, I think both Oya and I probably did interviews. You may have done them yourself in the last two weeks about this CRT thing. Right. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really critical going back to this question of answerability was when I think about grounding whatever I'm trying to say in an analytical point, I have to understand that that analysis must foremost be grounded in an analysis that actually advances the concerns and reads right. and makes um, an understanding of a particular situation for those who are most deeply impacted, right? I can't advance uh, analysis that really serves this intellectual bourgeoisie class to which we've sort of ascended. And I have yep. to be intentional yeah. about being back from that, not thinking, well, what are my colleagues going to think about what I'm about to say right. about right. policing, for example, opposed to like, what are communities who are desperately, you know, um, looking for better solutions in a police-free world thinking about when we have to answer these questions. And so for me, that sort of gets at the, the piece of how do you do so with a sense of integrity, right? And a sense of right. purpose that isn't about sort of what, what we call in the sort of, you know, popular spaces, clout chasing, if yeah. you will, right? It's like, if I'm given this platform to write for whatever publication, I have a responsibility to say some shit that matters that isn't something that anyone else could have just said because it's the thing that we're sort of trying to do here. And then the last piece I'll mention is um, part of it's a game. Right. Like going back and forth with editors is a real thing at every level of the process. Absolutely. And depending on your publication and depending on your editor, they may want you to make certain decisions that you have to decide whether you're comfortable with. Right. And be willing to sort of fight tooth and nail for certain things you must have included. Um, and, you know, to some extent, you know, for academics who are maybe listening to this and thinking about how this works in, in the context of their work. Sometimes it's just getting it done, right? And so if the substance of what it is you're trying to write is still basically there, but the editors need to make some pivots and some changes based on you know, their publication, sometimes you have to wash your hands of it, you know, of, of getting to like the third iteration um, where, you know, we all do track changes, right? And it's like they've done theirs, you like refute them and they come back with the same ones. Yep. And sometimes you're like, look, I need this to get published so I can move on to the next thing. Um, and I think that that's important to know that, you know, every you know, um, thing that you're trying to say isn't the hill to die on for the sake of it getting to publication. And sometimes, as, as we all know, right, the relationship with the editor is so important that if you have a desire to write like again and again and again, right. going through and fighting fights that maybe you could have conceded 
will sometimes limit the opportunity, right, for you to continue to publish. And sometimes it's totally worth it. There are definitely editors who have like given me pushback on stuff. And I was like, you know what, don't worry about it. And I've published it on my own or published it elsewhere. And I think that's an important part to think about agency because in the same way we feel beholden to these institutions, right, we should not be beholden to an editor simply because they work at a prestigious publication that we think might advance our career. Um, and we have to actually stand in something that matters more substantive than that because this is the one thing that social media has shown us, right? That you can create in many ways your own platforms, your own dissemination methods, your own opportunities to engage with the public devoid of, um, you know, one of these big publishers sort of signing off and, and legitimizing you to some extent, although that is also true. Yeah. I mean, and, and what, what came up for me as you were talking, and I think is interesting is that it's almost like, I think in sometimes in sort of our publishing with journals, a lot of our work, it feels like, at least to me, I'll use an I statement, that I have to spend that 30 or 40 pages having to disarm what I imagine are going to be anticipated critiques, pushback questions. Whereas when you're writing sort of for the public, here's, here's the thought. Now you're going to take it or you're going to leave it, but I said what I said. And, and it and sort of allows you to kind of uh, be able to contribute to discourse or to even start discourse. Um, and I've also found that there have been times when I've had a piece hit, but then I say, okay, and here's the backstory of this piece. I like quote retweet it and say, here's what didn't make it in, but I think it's important for the context. And then I then embrace my own sort of platform, if you want to call it that, to share what, what wasn't said in that piece. And that piece is still, I think, you know, sort of relevant and helpful. And so I see sort of all of that working together into your last point around, you know, like you said, I, you know, never mind, I'm good. And I think about some of your own work with the, um, the, the collective, the scholar, is it scholars for, I was just looking it up over here. Uh, scholars for Black lives. lives. Yeah. And so that it doesn't have to be in these places to sort of legitimate uh, our voices, but that there are places that we can go in and, and to create and to kind of be in community. So I mean, I think that's helpful. And I think you both have made some very insightful uh, reflections about sort of just what that process is and what, what the value add is and, and all of that good stuff. And so Charles, why I still have you, I, I'm curious about sort of this creative uh, aspect or endeavor of what public scholarship can be. Um, and so I don't know if you identify as an artist. That's how I perceive you. I hope that's a fair perception, but, uh, and having worked with performance, visual, digital scholarship, um, what do you think are the unique opportunities of this medium? Uh, what, what, what are the possibilities, particularly from a public scholarship perspective? Yeah. Um, so for me, as I mentioned, I, I, you know, came through undergrad as a writer. I was also in Africana studies at the same time. Um, but I was also a musician. So I went to Florida state primarily to be in the drum line there. It was, um, you know, amongst the top drum lines in the country, at least from PWI standpoint, um, saying that fully recognizing that my daddy went to Tuskegee, I was at <laughs> as much as I was at Florida state, you know, um, but, um, that's why I went there. I was intending to be a music major. Um, and so, you know, art and creation had always been a part of my process. And actually before I came uh, back to academia, or maybe I should say in the process of trying to get back into academia um, and gain entry to a PhD program, I worked in advertising for a number of years. Um, and so for me, I've always thought about this sort of understanding of the digital that exists both in the analog and in the virtual world and how, um, you know, communication as a communication studies person, um, can mediate a lot of that, right? And so what I think we are seeing with the advent of social media is this breakdown of what we look at in the comm space of mass media being a one-to-many communication style, right? You have your sort of broadcast journalism that goes out to the rest of the world. Well, what social media has provided for us is an ability to speak back, 
right? Yep. And to speak to each other, devoid of who we consider credible or official sources. And as we've seen in recent years, particularly related to movements and insurrections um, that, you know, the, the popular mass media often get it wrong, right? And we hear from the front lines, people who are providing some level of what we call participatory journalism. Yep. So when I think about that in the context of, you know, um, scholarship, there's so many different manifestations of that. And so for my own work, one thing I knew to be true, speaking again about audiences, you know, the Dream Defenders with whom I collaborated and worked on my dissertation project and have been in community with for a number of years, um, like probably none of them really wanted to read 297 pages of what I had written about their work, right? right. Not that they weren't interested in the substance of it, but like, right. fam, give me something that's like more digestible. I don't have to go through all these hoops to get it. So I already knew that there was a need to have different ways of disseminating that information, not just to those folks, but to organizers around the world. Um, and part of it for me too was functioning in a different way that I didn't have to be a certain type of leader in that space, but that I had a different set of skills that actually allowed me to build a different type of rapport. And so as, as you all uh, both know, um, I really think of myself as like a movement documentarian. And so, you know, as we talk about history and we think about, you know, the various uh, layers of conversation, both with regard to the civil rights movement into this sort of Juneteenth moment, but also thinking about in the wake of what took place in Atlanta and around the country, our conversation around Asian and black solidarity, yeah. right? That we show photographs of, you know, Grace Lee Boggs or Yuri Kochiyama and Huey P. Newton. And like somebody had to take these photographs. Somebody had to be there to engage and document that moment. And so as a part of my methodological practice, it was something I incorporated, but also something that felt of service and of use to a movement um, in a way that wouldn't allow me to try to force myself into the center of space that I didn't need to be in just because I had a credential or because as we know, and this would often happen when people would kind of learn what I actually did, there was sort of this immediate deference to like, well, what do you think? And it's like, this is not my space, right? Like I'm here to be in deference to you and add in you know, where I can. Uh, but I think it allows us to contribute to various communities in different ways around the same general idea, but it also allows for us to think of dissemination beyond the context of the journal. Right. And I think that's yes. so critically important, both in terms of timeliness of work and also the breadth and reach of that work. And the thing that frustrates me to no end, being someone who studies sort of you know, social movements is, you know, the movement can't wait two, three years for this to come out. Right. We need this information now. So yes. I need to find ways to do that. And part of that for me was laying bare in a sort of effort to be transparent to some extent, using a place like Twitter for field notes. Yep. Right. Which is like literally just documenting things that are happening, posting pictures as they're happening in a sort of journalistic fashion. But on the back end, I can go there and, and have a full ready document of everything that I saw and did in that space, you know, in a way that's in real time. I have a Instagram archive, even from my dissertation work still that's available that I can pull from. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different possibilities when we sort of broaden our understanding of what these things actually are. And I think one of the things that's sometimes elusive, particularly for early career scholars and grad students, um, is not really knowing how the sausage is made, right? And we can all <laughs> attest to this, like having taught and taken methods courses that are lacking in so many ways of like, what do you do after you collect all of your data, right? And I think that part um, for me was breaking open this notion that the way it's written is not the way we actually do it. And we should do more of how we actually do this work and then translate that for folks in this sort of public space. And I think that's what I try to do in some extent as I undertake projects, knowing that there are a number of graduate students you know, so, who follow some of my work and other colleagues who look at it, um, is try to use that as a portal or a gateway into the actual sort of making of the research process. So it's less... Um, 
what's the word intimidating that like yeah. you have to do it perfectly or there's a perfect way to do it when really we're all especially when you do field work right you're literally having to adjust and be nimble in real time and things get messy so how do you sort of deal with that and manage that and so that's kind of how i interpret um you know sort of the, the possibilities for us when we think about this but i, I think you know that can be also a longer conversation for and sure. thankfully you know which i'll plug now one that we will have at ash um, this year uh, with myself, um, Amanda Latz, who's my section co-chair and the previous section co-chairs um, to have a broader conversation. So we as an association and as a group of scholars can think about these in a more communal way that sort of expands beyond those who have had maybe a little bit of an earlier entry point, right? But so many others who are like, well, how do I do this in my own word? Yeah, that you know, what's coming up for me too is sort of this also to the point that you make about the opportunity too for not only for us to speak to the public, but then for the public to speak back. And so there is a study I'm working on with some scholars um, looking at the experiences of fat students on campus doing a photo voice methodology. But then I said, this still feels incomplete. And what we kind of had decided to do as a team was is alongside of that study, we would do a public sort of art installation where anyone across the country, whether they were in the study or not, could then submit photos and their narratives. And then we sort of use that as a point of departure to have this public conversation. And yeah, we have the, the data from the bounds of the study, but that doesn't mean that that's where we can stop, right? Having the conversation, sharing the knowledge for people to say, here's my experience. And so then figuring out how to host that, that, that gallery. And so it gives people an opportunity to sort of talk back uh, and to do so in real time. Thank you for that. So, so Oyan, I'm thinking about this all sounds great, right? And it's great to have our work out there and to be engaged. And I'm wondering, and so it seems to me that there could be benefits to being viewed as a public scholar um, or for our work to have some public profile as I, would, as I perceive some of your work has. I also imagine that there are challenges to that, particularly work that centers on equity and justice, um, critical work. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that, or if you could share from your perspective or experience, the challenges and opportunities uh, of, of having a public profile with your work. Yeah, um, thank you for this question. Um, I think, you know, there are, there are multiple sides to this question. Um, and I wanna be clear on the benefits. I never went into my career thinking like, well, first I never went into my career thinking like, I'm gonna get a PhD because I didn't know what the heck that was. Right. Number two, <laughs> I never went into this career thinking I'm going to become a public scholar um, and be visible and do all this stuff. I went into this thinking if I'm going to do this research and engage in these deep methodological rigorous, meh, 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 right? <laughs> like I want this to matter, right? And um, and I think part of that was because when I was an ed practitioner, student affairs um, professional. Uh, I was in an ethnic studies department and I was reading a lot more ethnic studies this is about 20 years ago now. And I was reading a lot of ethnic studies thinking to myself, why doesn't our field read this? And why aren't practitioners and higher ed administrators reading this and having this inform um, the way we lead our organizations in higher ed? Um, and I asked a couple of these ethnic studies scholars, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of implications here, practically speaking. Um, and they're like, well, it's not really my lane, right? And I'm like, well, then, it, mm, well, whose lane is that? <laughs> right? And like, well, then, and it made me sad. Honestly, it makes me sad when I read an article like I just recently did in AERJ, thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how did these 
I have never, it, it was a study on Common Core mm. and the influential networks that created Common Core. And I was thinking to myself, like, did these scholars engage publicly about Common Core as the discourse was unfolding over the last five years? And if they didn't, that makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because like, it's just going to collect, I don't know, hits on the AERJ website. Right. What lessons are there to learn around like really transforming our systems of education for the people? Um, and it just made me really feel sad. Um, so I think about going into, you know, Charles said, you get asked that question of like, how do you do this? How do you become a public scholar? How do you do a public scholarship? Um, or, you know, how I kind of want to reframe that question. Maybe the question really needs to be, how should we make this work matter? Mm. Um, right. And, and what's, what's really been great working at Spencer is that a few years ago, our president, Dr. Nayila um, Nasir, engaged in a field-wide conversation and asked people in the education research field, what do you want? Like, what is it that you care about? And the number one answer was, I want my research to matter. Right. Mm. Um, and so then that gets me to the other side of the coin. <laughs> like, right. And what you kind of alluded to, which is the challenges, right? So if you are to seek to do work of consequence, you should expect consequences. Um, and not all of them are going to be wonderful. Um, yep. A couple of years ago, I was doxxed um, uh, by the far right and started receiving threatening mail at my home address where my child and my partner are. And uh, that was not okay. Um, so I want to be really real about yeah. those challenges. I think, Charles, you may have experienced this dark side as well. Uh, I don't know, TJ, if you have, um, but this is such a common thing now. And I have to say that our universities, sometimes some parts of our universities are willing to protect us and other parts are not. Um, and at the end of the day, regard, even the parts of the university that are there who are supportive in situations and circumstances like that, their job is to protect the university's brand. At the right. end of the day, they're not going to protect you. Right. Um, and that I had to learn that the hard way. Um, they were not, they were going to receive all the threatening phone calls to the provost's office and the dean's office and the president's office calling for my termination and worse, yeah. right? Threats, death threats, et cetera, uh, harm mm -hmm. to my family um, and just ignore them, right? right? They were just going to let it, just silently let it move on to the next, yeah. when campus reform attacks the next academic who does work around equity and justice, right? And so I also want to say, do not let that be the thing that silences you because that's the whole point. The Breitbart, the campus reforms, this is an orchestrated yep. strategy to shut us down. The attacks on CRT, that's an orchestrated strategy decades long in the making um, to shut our voices down. Um, so don't let it shut it down. And there are ways to, I think, you know, be politically astute, know that there's a community or, of people who are, are behind you, right? Know who your people are. Um, because if you're doing work that matters, it comes back to that accountability piece again. 
um, and the relationships that you have with the people you care about, the people you wanted to benefit with your work to begin with. Right. Um, be proactive with protecting yourself and your loved ones. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. That's incredible. And I think, you know, there are a few different things I'm taking away. One is that part of, you know, sort of synthesizing what, what Charles is offering you have offered is that to be a public scholar is to be answerable, right? And to engage in a scholarship of consequence. And this piece that if you engage in a scholarship of consequence, there will be consequences. And I think what I would add to that is, but the alternative is to be inconsequential. So <laughs> at, at that point, we got some decisions to make as scholars who we want to be and how we want to be uh, and, and the so what of it all. So I appreciate, appreciate that. And I appreciate um, the work that you've done and the way that you have, you know, stood, as we say in our community, 10 toes down on it. And, um, uh, and it just really inspires me personally. And I know so many of us in the field. So we are nearing the end of our time, which really saddens me. I could chat with y'all like, forever. But we have a, a brief uh, lightning round. So these are seven questions in under 90 seconds, and they are all related to writing. Uh, and so I will ask those questions, ask that both of you uh, answer them uh, for us, and that'll be sort of how we wrap up our episode today. So are you ready? Hopefully your brains are like sufficiently warmed up. <laughs> For, for this round, and we will go uh, through them, starting with this one. So you have written something that's super dope, uh, and you have been invited to keynote a conference. What uh, is your entrance music as you walk to the stage? Us by Ruby, Ruby Ibarra. Lovely Day by Bill Withers. Nice. All right, so your favorite place to read and or write? Reading is my easy chair by the window and writing is right here in my desk and cafes occasionally when, you know, in the before times. <laughs> um, I will just say wherever I can do it. Um, as a new parent with a less than 18 month old, it's just wherever you can do it, whenever you can. Sometimes that's in the bathroom or the closet. <laughs> if you're lucky, maybe it's in the office. So just wherever it can get done. They're just saying wherever I'm allowed to, wherever my family allows me to. All right. That is so real. So third question, when I'm not writing, I love to what? I don't have tenure, so I don't even know if I can answer that publicly, can I, right? Like, why aren't you writing? I'm always uh, writing. Uh, right. No, it's definitely taking photographs, like, by far, um, you know, as far as, like, a thing. But more importantly than that, especially with summer here, spending time with the family. Photos and family. Yeah, yeah, definitely spending time with my family, my six-year-old. They grow so fast, Charles. Hold on to every moment. Photograph everything. Oh, I'm learning. I have thousands of photos. I love the stories of both of your respective tiny humans. They are my favorite things on the planet. Uh, okay, so they can be academic or non-academic, but who is uh, either your favorite author or one of them at the moment? Hands down, Kiyosei Lehman, Black writer from Jackson, Mississippi. Ooh, I totally agree. That that book, Heavy, just day, it lingers with me. Oh my gosh. Um, every day. Your it was oh. molecule shifting. That's how I describe yeah. that book. Yes. It was molecule shifting in I my like bones. Ever, ever read a book where I was like, oh my gosh, I molecule shifted. That's exactly it. Um, right now I'm reading The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Mm. Phenomenal. Um, yeah, absolutely 
I'll add that to my list. I got my new reader today, so I'll add that to my list. Okay, if you could assign required reading to all of higher ed and they'd be required to read it, what would it be? Right now, it would be the sum of us. Um, I think right now it would be um, the Marion Baldwin's new book, In the Shadow. Okay. I think it's probably the most um, groundbreaking, I think, text for higher ed that is not written by a quote unquote higher ed scholar. Excellent. Excellent. So something that you have written that you are proudest of. Why you got to throw these hard questions at us? <laughs> oh, for me, um, I thought I knew the answer to that and I didn't. It's hard. It's a hard question. You know why? Because every solid writer who enjoys writing, everything is never finished. Right. Right. So there's always evolutions. Like there's some, I've told my students, some of the things I've written in the past, especially in academic journals, I'm like, can I like revise that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I guess like impact wise, if we're going back to impact, I have to say that I am proud of the amicus brief that Mm. um, Liliana Garces, Janelle Wong, Mike, Mike, win and I wrote um, and we'll probably be updating hopefully we won't need to update it in the fall but yeah in the Harvard um, it's the SFFAB Harvard case so impact wise awesome um, so I think for me right now it would be um, a piece that's coming out on July 1st in this um, magazine called Wartime it's the publication of the political organization Black Men Build and it's entitled What is Misogyny by mm. Black men need to stop calling black women females. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's the most important to me in part because it's actually to write a public audience. Um, and given the work that I do, folks think of me as like a race person, but I think the most important race work that I do is within our group as black folks to get cisgendered heterosexual men to understand, right? Like what our role actually needs to be in uplifting and supporting and coming to, to fight for um, black women, femme, trans folks. Um, and so that piece to me is I think really important. Awesome, I'm snapping yeah. to the in-community accountability work. That's the hardest stuff. It is. That intra-community work is definitely difficult. And I have, I've peaked. Uh, Charles has been definitely doing the work. Uh, and then finally, uh, either words of wisdom or a quote to live by that you want to leave our audience with. So I say this to pretty much anyone that I come into contact with, especially within our field, um, coming of age, if you will, as, as we all are. Um, that we need not confuse our work with our jobs and that those things often can and will be different, especially in a neoliberal academy. And so don't allow the job to take away from what is your actual work and be sure to understand the difference because without it, then you sort of lack the agency to make, I think, informed decisions um, and to continue to do your work with integrity. Thank you. That's amazing. I I have to look this up real quick. I've been coming back to this over and over again, Grace Lee Boggs uh, work and uh, this quote that has been memefied as well. You cannot change any society unless you take responsibility for it, unless you see yourself as belonging to it and responsible for Mm. it. Ashe, that is incredible. Well, first, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. I wish I could talk to y'all for hours and hours on end. Uh, And I just have to say publicly, and this isn't a a performance, I have deeply respected and admired who you are and how you are um, and and the work that you have done um, in really trying to um, shift the the foundation um, that our our society and that higher education stands on. And so uh, I just shared on social media that a, a piece that Charles was discussing on finally hit. 
but I'm also working on a piece that Oyan was on a discuss it, uh, a discuss it for. It is super close. I am super excited for that piece, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. So that's the other thing y'all have in common is that uh, you have poured into me as a scholar, and I appreciate that. Uh, for personal reasons and obviously professional ones. So with that, that is our time. Thank you both for being here. I hope that all of you have been able to take something away from this uh, incredible conversation. And uh, until next time, get right or get left.